You're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview the best founders, operators, and investors. One of the topics we've touched on a good amount in hallway chats here at Square One is what's going on in education. Since 1996, only three sectors have materially risen when adjusted for inflation. Construction's a bit more expensive, healthcare costs have doubled, but college education is a whopping 4x the inflation benchmark. And this rise in cost is having a significant impact on the economy. Millennials are less likely to start businesses, own homes, and they're taking longer to settle down due to the crippling impact of student loans. A lot of companies have been trying to disrupt the higher ed space, and one of the companies I've been most impressed by is Lambda School, a 30-week immersive coding school that only charges students if they secure a $50,000-plus job upon completion of the program. Lambda is one of the fastest-growing startups in the Valley and just announced a fresh round of capital this week led by Google Ventures and Stripe. It's why we're excited to have Austin Allred, founder and CEO of Lambda School, on the show this week. So without further ado, Austin, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Austin, I'm excited to have you on the show today because you know you have a really unique story, and I want to dive into Lambda School and your perspective on the future of education pretty deeply. But before that, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led, led you to founding Lambda. Yeah, let's see. Um, so before I moved to San Francisco, um, I was working remotely in tech, um, basically living kind of by my in-laws' farm. Um, the thing that, that struck me the most was just seeing the disparity between, you know, what the potential set of options are for somebody in that town versus what the potential set of options are for somebody in San Francisco. Um, and realizing that if you want to potentially change those options, it, it takes a lot of money. And that's money that most folks in a town like that don't necessarily have. Um, so a lot of people are happy living in a small town, but if there's somebody that wants to, for example, break into tech, it's borderline impossible um, coming from an area like that. Um, so you know, the original vision was just to take a code school and put it online and have it be really good. Um, and slowly we realized that if we want to really solve the problem, um, it, you know, we have to do a little bit more than just be a school. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. Yeah, and it's an interesting space, right? Because I think when you think about what's going on in, in the state of education, um, there, there's a lot going, uh, frankly, in the, in the wrong direction. You know, there's a, there's a pretty famous graph that shows consumer prices over the last 20 years with inflation as the baseline. And, you know, over the last 20 years, aggregate inflation's been, you know, about 50 odd percent or so, right? So if you spend a dollar in 1995, it was a dollar 50 in 2016. And, and a lot of things have gone down, you know, with respect to that benchmark, especially software technology. But, uh, you know, three buckets of costs have actually materially risen, you know, construction, which is a bit more expensive, healthcare, which is about, which is, running at about two times the inflation benchmark, and then education, which is actually running at four times the inflation benchmark, which which is totally nuts, right? Um, and, and listeners of this podcast absolutely feel it, you know, with their student loans. So what's going on in education, right? Give, give us a little bit of perspective on why this is happening and, and the history of kind of how we've ended up where we are. Yeah, I mean, what, what you're basically seeing, um, all of those areas that are increasing uh, kind of turns into where markets are broken and you have some um, instances of being a cartel. So basically, that's where supply is artificially restricted by some form of regulation. Um, and there's not 
not really a true market there. Sometimes that's the government trying to solve for some inefficiency. Sometimes it's just um, bad policy. There, there, there are a variety of different reasons. But if we look at education specifically, um, basically in, in education, we decided uh, about 30, 40 years ago that uh, we wanted everybody to become educated. So we are going to give everybody access to student loan dollars that were backed by the federal government. Um, and when we did that, the kind of the flip side of that is you now, as a potential student, have an unlimited amount of dollars at your disposal to go to school. Um, and schools capitalizing on that just started increasing tuition, increasing price. Um, sometimes they increase the services that they offer, um, but it basically it just caused this really rapid inflation in the entire space. So. I can get unlimited money to go to school, and now tuition is really expensive, so I do what I have to do to go to the best school. Um, that's basically what we're seeing happen. It was caused by good intentions, but um, you can't flood a market with money without consequences on the other side, generally speaking. Well, and so the interesting thing about those loans also is, you know, those are the only, student loans are the only types of loans you, you actually can't get out of even if you declare personal bankruptcy, right? So you're funneling a right. bunch of students into a system, you know, that's disconne disconnected with the output they're seeking, right? Which I think is a huge, actually, academic debate in, in academia, right? Which is, should you be going to school to learn how to think, or should you be going to school connected to the job market? And I think the value proposition of going to school to learn how to think is all fine and well when you're not putting yourself in, you know, absolutely crippling debt. And, and you're seeing that, right, with student debt at an all-time high. You know, what, what's the effect you're seeing on, you know, on students in general, right, with the value proposition of college just being, you know, tilting more and more out of balance? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, when I graduated high school, you know, about 10 years ago, um, all that anybody talked about was get into the best school, um, pay whatever it takes, study what you're passionate about. And I think that is reflected in the fact that I come from kind of a lower to middle income background area where you know people saw college as this pathway to a better life. And basically they said, you know, based on the data, no matter what it takes, you should get there. Um, what they didn't realize is that because the cost had increased so drastically that that's not actually true anymore. Um, first of all, it's just so much more expensive. Um, and second of all, the return of a degree relative to the cost of degree is declining. Um, so it's more and more people are getting degrees, so the bar is getting higher, and people have to feel like they need to get in more and more debt to compete. So it kind of creates this vicious cycle where, you know, more school is better no matter what, and you pay whatever it takes, so it, it keeps getting more expensive. I think the generations we're seeing now are the first to really, um, I mean, my generation didn't talk about student loans. The, the generation that's graduating high school now, they're, they're well-versed. They know people that have hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loans. That's been reality for quite a long time. Um, so they're, they're much more sensitive to it than even I was 10 years ago, which I think is, is really healthy. I think it's pretty unsustainable um, at the pace that it's at, and people are starting to recognize that. 
So talk about Lambda a little bit, right? Give us give us the kind of brief of what Lambda School is and, and how it's a solution in, in this problem. Yeah, so, so I'll take you through kind of the first iteration of a solution to that, which is um, kind of a code boot camp. So 12 weeks, we'll call it $10,000. Um, so for, you know, the cost of, depending on where you go to school, maybe it's a semester tuition, maybe it's half a semester um, you can basically spend three months, head down, and go get into a new job. Um, that's really all that we, we started out by looking at. Um, but we realized that even even that $10,000 of risk is just much too expensive for most people. Um, first of all, you know, if you are not a degree-granting institution, society isn't quite used to that yet. So they don't understand, is it actually possible to get a job as a result of this program? Um, so it feels inherently risky. And then, you know, you're not playing with federally backed dollars anymore. So if you want to take out a loan, there are real interest rates, you know, 7 10% kind of consumer credit interest rates. And if it doesn't work out, um, it's really difficult to climb out from under. So uh, Lambda School, basically, we train people for $0 up front and then if and only if you get a job in the field that you studied that pays more than $50,000 a year, um, you'll pay a percentage of your income for two years. And if you don't, then you pay nothing. Um, so the goal is really to de-risk a really, really high-quality education and make it accessible to everyone. Yeah, so talk about, talk about the income. I think the income share agreement part right of the model is is really interesting right and i i think it's one of the most innovative parts of the structure for for two reasons right like one unlike the status quo financial incentives are actually aligned with student outcomes right in this case you guys have as a school you have a literal financial incentive to make sure people are getting placed right in high paying jobs but i think the the probably underspoken part of it and i want to get your thoughts on this a little bit more is I think it significantly increases the market, right? So if you think about the model in kind of present tense terms, you can think about sizing the market as saying, you know, how many students would take, you know, Lambda versus, you know, not other schooling options, traditional university, code boot camps, right, et cetera, up front. But I think the right way to think about it is actually how many people that were out of the education market before because they couldn't afford the risk, right, that $10,000 up front can now actually enter. So it feels like you guys are actually unlocking a massive block of people that would have never had access before. Is, is that the right assumption? How do, you, how do you think about the income share agreement and kind of that in your model? Yeah, that is 100% correct. Um, so, you know, I think now we're getting to the point where if you're going to a school that costs $20,000 and is in person or Lambda school, it's a, you know, it's something you think about really hard. In the beginning, if you had $20,000, you didn't come to Lambda school. Lambda school, for, for better or for worse, was for folks that had never had access to an opportunity like that. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, we, we basically started out by saying, you know what, there, there are so many people out there that are so bright and so talented, and they're not going to go to one of these other schools, so let's just go find them. Let's find the, you know, maybe you call it the diamond in the rough. Um, but, but clearly there are brilliant people all over. So our first students were you know, working in a warehouse and ended up as a software engineer at Uber or, you know, college dropouts making 20 or 30K. Now they're making 85, 90K. And we have stories like that every single day. Um, you know, 
Our average increase in income per student right now is over $40,000 from before Lambda to after. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a whole swath of society that just is perfectly capable, perfectly talented, and has never had that, the access or they've never, it's never been de-risked enough for them. Um, and I think that's an important distinction as well. Yeah, and I think you can actually separate that de-risking probably into two buckets, right? So, you know, as I was kind of thinking about as as I was hearing your response, one bucket is the folks that, you know, can't pay the $20,000 up front today, right? And and Lambda and its kind of current present form solves for that. But there's actually another block, which is probably, you know, kind of lower on the chain than even that, which is, it's not even about the upfront cost, but it's actually about the opportunity cost, you know, of working versus attending your program. Right. Um, because your program is unlike the code academies, right, of 12 weeks, et cetera. And we can kind of get into to that a little bit. I think the, the, the desired outcome for that is is 12 weeks is probably not enough for reskilling or, or upskilling. But because the financial model is, you know, you're paying 10K or 20K up front, I'm sure they have to bake in a margin. And, and that sweet spot is probably 12 weeks. But your guys's program is you know six, seven months, right, 40 hours a week. So how do you how do you even how do you think about that next level of folks, which is, you know, it's not even the de-risking the upfront monetary part; it's actually de-risking the opportunity cost, you know, working versus attending your programs. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the more difficult part, you know, we found that even even after we have kind of abstracted away the risk of tuition, um, there's still the risk of what I'll call cost of living. Right, you still have to pay the bills somehow while you're going through Lambda School and looking for a job. Um, the, the thing that we're lucky to have is most people in the, in the United States, maybe I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people have family that they can fall back on or friends that they can fall back on, so long as it's for a set duration of time, right? Um, I mean, me personally, if I had to, I could go live with my parents for seven months. It's probably not socially the coolest thing to do, but it's there. Um, that is not true for everybody, um, which is difficult. So we have a, a part-time program that you can kind of do after hours. So that runs 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific, uh, Monday through Thursday, and then a few hours on Saturday um, for, for a year. Uh, and then you know, we are experimenting with trying to invest deeply enough that we can abstract away that opportunity cost to, to some degree as well. So we have experiments running right now where we're paying people a living stipend, um, and they don't they don't pay back unless they get a job. Uh, where we're housing people, same situation. So, um, you know, we're really trying to drive into that next level of de-risking for people. And how do you guys think about controlling the quality of the pool? Right, because the flip side of eliminating risk and and significantly addressing the uh, the market size, right, or the student base, is you could have a freeloader problem, right? You'll have a, you'll just have a huge wave of entrance, and of course, there's going to be always a portion that are serious because of the incentives on, on the opposite end. But how do you think about balancing that acquisition cost and, and really, I think more importantly for your business, quality assurance, right, with with the volume that comes in? Yeah, I mean, for for any school selection is is everything, right? Um, so for us and you'll find that most schools, at least most code schools, use the, the price as kind of their final filtering mechanism for whether you're actually serious. Um, 
so you know you talk to most code schools and they don't even consider you as a student until you pay at least a deposit and then they know okay this guy's for real um or this gal is for real just because you know people can seem very interested but when it comes time to pull out the checkbook that that all falls away so we we have students we select students in a different mechanism um, which is instead of paying cash, you pay kind of sweat equity. So before you can get into Lambda School, um, you have to do pre-course work, which is kind of about a month part-time. Um, you can do it faster if you're um, quicker at picking things up. Um, but call it, you know, three weeks of part-time work. And that that's our main filter. Uh, we still have mechanisms for you know, we, we talk to you and make sure that the program is right for you and it actually meets your needs and um, that kind of thing. But you have to do the work um, to get into Lambda School. And it turns out the people that are really good at going to class and doing the work are the people that are going to be really good at doing the class, going to class and doing the work, um, even under an income share agreement. So that's, um, yeah, we, we call it tryouts. Um, and similarly to any other... I guess sports team or something like that. You have to show us that you're worth betting on. Yeah, I think you. I I actually recall. I think you've talked about this before. Which there was an interesting correlation, which you were saying in, in some of the early student cohorts, especially. Um, and, and you know, curious to hear if you still find it. But you were talking about how the folks that are actually coming from you know the most of desperate backgrounds, right? Um, are actually doing the best in your programs, right? And the hypothesis in part was because there's so much at stake. But I, I think it actually speaks to something much more interesting, which is how broken in some sense some of the signaling mechanisms we use in society are, right? If you're if you're able to have folks like that go through the program and actually perform at the top of the cohort, right, it actually says that the signaling and credentialing in part is completely backwards. Yeah, I mean, I've... You know, so I've spent my fair share of time at Google and Facebook, um, you know, not, not as an employee, just kind of at, at lunch. And they are famous for recruiting from all of the top schools. And the level of an entitlement there sometimes just, just blows me away. People that are mad that there's not organic quail for lunch like there was supposed to be. Um, and our students, like, they, they come from the other side of the spectrum generally. Um, I, I've wanted to keep some kind of a desperation index or something because there, there is something to the fact that our best performing students are just the ones that this has to work and there's no other option. And that's a really strong motivator. Um, and, you know, personally as, you know, I've always worked really in startups and maybe it's different in a big company. But the thing that I try to optimize for when I'm hiring is I look for somebody who you know, has a lot of potential and has a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. Um, you want somebody that's looking for an opportunity to prove themselves. Um, and, you know, maybe if you're in a bigger company, you just want someone that will come in, do the work, and go home and be done. Um, but, but, yeah, I think every company to some extent is playing money ball a little bit, and they're looking for people that are going to outperform their existing pay grade. Otherwise... I guess they are working at Google or Facebook making 300000 a year, and you can't hire them anyway. Um, so that, that's how I think about it. 
I think that's really interesting. I, I think it makes I think it makes a ton of sense, right? I think it also follows on the slope of good startup hiring, which is, you know, find people whose um, you know, Y intercept isn't necessarily high, but you know, have a fast slope, right? And I think always you find the folks that have the fastest slopes are the ones that have something to prove, right? Uh, whether it's internal ambition or external considerations. I, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about you know the the verticals you guys are in right now. You're in you know data science and software engineering, and I think it makes a lot of sense for a host of reasons, right? So one, they're hot job markets. Two, they have strong salary packages, right? But I think one of the unique things and the interesting things about those is they're actually positions that are most receptive to non-traditional backgrounds and don't really face the inertia of signaling. So if you're thinking about consulting or investment banking, private equity it's going to be really hard to get a top tier job without the traditional signaling and credentialing, right? We can have a, we can have a debate over, you know, whether that's right or wrong, but for, you know, frankly, the infrastructure just isn't built to go recruit students that haven't gone, you know, to the, to the top schools or come from top backgrounds, you know, but for engineering and data science, you, I think you can do it. Is that how you guys thought about it? Or, you know, how, what are you kind of seeing? Why did, why did you get into those verticals first? Yeah, so, so I think what we're really seeing is just um, an economic shortfall in the labor market. So basically, there are more people that need to hire software engineers than there are capable software engineers. There are more people that need to hire capable data scientists than there are capable data scientists. Um, so you know, when you reach that stage, if there's somebody that's competent, you have to hire them. So we look at it from not so much a sociological signaling perspective, but from a from an economic where the shortfalls perspective. Um, and we started out in computer science and data science because that's where there is an obvious gap. Um, there are other gaps in other industries that are not tech-related um, that eventually I'm sure we'll be going into. Um, and, you know, eventually if you work toward um, kind of where there's more equilibrium, um, then you you know you basically start to play ball head on with other schools and other methods of learning and other methods of signaling. Um, right now, we don't have to play that game. If we can get a solid software engineer, they get hired every time. Um, so that's just an obvious place to start as a new company. Yeah, and the product is interesting too because it's all it's all online as I understand it, right? So talk a little bit about talk a little bit about that, right? Because traditionally with MOOCs, et cetera, you know, online courses are big. Drop-off rates, you know, in person have significantly better completion percentages and, and not just finishing of course, but actually, you know, better impact from the perspective of, you know, retention, application, et cetera. Is that, you know, the more I think about Lambda School, the more I feel that, that that's actually a second order observation. And it's, you know, the first order observation is probably online courses are actually fine, but you just have to surround it with the appropriate infrastructure, right? The right educators, the right community concepts, et cetera. Yeah. You know, how are you, how do you guys think about that balance of, you know, online versus in person? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the reality is that instructional design for online requires a new approach um, and historically we've basically tried to take all of the things that work offline and put them online exactly as they were and that just simply does not work um, so you know we, we always had better um, completion rates than say a MOOC since day one just because we're we're filtering a little bit better sure. um, but now I would guess 
that Lambda School's completion rates are as good, if not better, than any in-person school um, of a similar ilk. Um, I mean, it, in the beginning, that was, you know, whenever we talked to people, they were sure that that was going to be the thing that kill us, killed us. Um, and it's just not. Um, you have to build the course differently. You have to structure the community differently. You have to kind of decide where the in-person or, you know, synchronous touch points are going to be. I think it would be very, very difficult for us if everything were asynchronous. Um, there's not an AI that's smart enough to help you out based on wherever you are right now. Um, and I, I also think it's tempting to move everything asynchronous because then the cost plummets. Um, but, you know, for us, we found that having everything live, interactive, having a community, having peers, um, having mentors, having a daily stand-up, all that kind of stuff. And we could, I could talk about the pedagogical underpinnings for hours, but, but all that stuff really, really matters if you're going to have an online course that works. And I don't know if anybody other than us has ever really, really done it right because they've never really, really had to. Um, so most schools, you know, give it a shot and it doesn't work, and then they say, oh, okay, let's just keep it in person. Um, and we just kind of stuck our flag in and said, you know, we're going to make it work come hell or high water, and we did. Yeah, I think that's, I think the, the really interesting thing in this space, and I think, you know, why MOOCs kind of fail at large, you know, there's, there's a lot, lots of reasons we could kind of, con, we could just have a conversation about that. But I, I think one of the things that I observe, I observe the most about startups, especially in the ed tech space is people try to take technology and just apply it to what the status quo is, right? And, and I think what's really required in the space is first principle problem solving, right? One of the things I like that you guys do is this concept of, you know, cohorts, progression-based mastery. I want you to talk about that a little bit more. But yeah, I th and I think that's a really interesting specific example because it's, you know, it's a case study of basically how you unbundle the classroom experience with technology, not how do you apply technology to the exact same thing, you know, that's going on, right? I think a lot of, a lot of the pedagogy, right, and a lot of the instructional design has to be oriented really around how do you reimagine what the classroom experience is, right? And if it, it, with the student as your customer, right? The concept of just saying, hey, we're gonna put homework online, right? It's it's not really gonna cut it. Talk talk a little bit more about the progression-based mastery one. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, um, so, so I think being online affords us a lot of opportunities that you wouldn't have in a physical setting. Um, one of the many, many examples is we have enacted what we call mastery-based progression, where basically at the end of every week, um, so we call each week a sprint um, following kind of agile methodology, so students are used to that when they enter the workforce. Um, so at the end of every week, which we call sprint, there is a sprint challenge. And if you don't pass the sprint challenge, instead of just kind of moving you on and saying, oh, I hope you can pick it up later, that, that doesn't really work in computer science because you're always building on top of the you know, fundamentals that you learned in the past. And if you miss something, you won't understand the thing that happens next week. So it's just, you know, a lot of people get tripped up in the first couple of weeks of a code boot camp, and then they just plow their way through, and they're in trouble. Um, so we, we, we rolled out something called master-based progression, where if you fail the sprint challenge, um, instead of pushing you forward with, and knowing that you're not ready, um, you just repeat that week. 
Um, and we, you know, have staff dedicated to help you through that. And you, you basically do it until you're ready to move on. And that, you know, it, it, on average, a student will do it less than one week. So, you know, it's kind of one week for some of the students. More students, it's two weeks, but a lot go through with zero. Um, but for those students that do it even one week, it is just such a huge benefit. Um, moving on with without having understood the fundamentals on which you're about to build is just a recipe for disaster. Um, it's, it's expensive for us to do that, but it's not like we need an extra dozen classrooms um, because we're online. So there, there are a lot of things that we just don't have to we don't have the same constraints as you would in a physical world. So I think, you know, for a long time, the goal of online education was just to reach some kind of parity with physical education. And now we're moving beyond that. And we can do cool stuff now that you don't have all the same constraints. And how do you guys, how do you think about that when you start getting into, you know, next level things like, um, you know, coursework or skills that require, um, things that are probably less friendly to an online model, right? Teaming, problem solving, you know, those, you know, those types of things in groups. Um, you know, the software engineering, obviously software engineering data science market is large enough. There's a significant use case there. So this might not even be something that's, that's kind of on the horizon, but I'm curious from the perspective of, I think maximum impact with this, you know, this kind of program organization goes to all sorts of different verticals, all sorts of different skills. So, I have to imagine, you know, there's been some thought, even if it's in the data, you know, science and engineering capacity, how do you, how do you think about kind of that next level for teaming, problem solving, some of those things that probably an online model is, is not as great for? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's true, actually. Um, not that I would push back on a podcast interviewer. But, <laughs> push um, back. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I think it's just as possible or, you know, maybe it's not just as easy, but it's definitely, definitely possible to have a group teamwork environment um, online. Um, the trick is it has to be synchronous and you have to have the right tools built. Um, those exist for software. Um, if it were nursing, um, you might have to build a different set of tools. Um, but, I mean, software, it's, you know, group discussion and you're typing most of the time. So it's, it's pretty pretty feasible um but yeah hmm, interesting yeah i it's we we see it a lot you know in in large organizations especially which that's that's typically the number one hesitancy to uh online courses or doing things digitally but again i think it might actually allude to what we were talking about a little bit before which is that's a it's a second order observation right online as a form isn't necessarily suboptimal but the way online is constructed today is probably suboptimal Trying to, you know, if we're going to use a Bible analogy, put old wine in new bottles um, just doesn't work. You have to put new wine in new bottles. I can't believe I just pulled in the Bible there. But, um, for the sake of analogy, the Bible is literature. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you know, if you have a new container, it's best to put new things in. And I think we see that fundamentally with the internet um, that, you know, uh, in, the, in the early days of the internet, you couldn't imagine anything better to do with it than like send faxes and put the New York Times on there. Um, 
people couldn't dream about Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Uber, for example. Um, it's just, you know, with a new set of fundamental technologies, you can do a new set of things. And interestingly, you know, people kind of assumed that this has been possible for a really long time. Um, we would have been spending 99% of our time building software and 1% of our time figuring out the instructional design, even, you know, when the Slack invented, like probably 10 years ago. Yeah, yep. Been just, just building the tech. But now there's Slack and there's Zoom, and those technologies are better than we could ever hope to build. Um, and, you know, WebRTC and code editors usually have some kind of co-editing feature. There's just, it, it's finally getting to a point where it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, GitHub, AWS. I mean, you're you're extracting the complete complexity out of building the software, right? And it allows you to focus, you know, I dare to say to an engineer, the more important parts, but really the more important parts, right? I mean, you're focusing on the students, the instructional design, the experience, the pedagogy, right? And that's a lot of where the hard thinking is going as opposed to, you know, how do we rack up, you know, server farms, right? Or how do we build the right internal chat feature, right? Or, or whatever that might be. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, we don't, we build systems and software to kind of tie all the existing tools together, but thank heavens we don't have to try to build like a video chat. That's, that's, that's a whole company full of a thousand engineers. Um, and we can just kind of piggyback on that. So it's, we're lucky. Yeah, totally. No, I think it's, I mean, it's the model of startups and innovation, right? You wouldn't see uh, Airbnb, Instacart, any Uber, any of these companies without, without those fundamental underlying uh underlying changes you know one one final question austin as we round out it and it actually has nothing to do with ed tech um you became a little bit infamous for putting a hundred percent of your net worth into tesla a couple years back and i and i point that out just because a i think it's pretty funny b i think it says a lot about you from a risk perspective i would i would never be able to do that so kudos um but I want to dig into the psychology of that move a little bit more, right? You know, why did you do it? And, and more importantly, what does it say about you as a founder? Um, yeah, so I think the first answer is that my net worth rounded to zero anyway, so relative, right? I mean, it's relative significance. Um, yeah, it was all that I had. So. Yeah. Um, but I think fundamentally that analysts and investors will do now and will forever underestimate the impact of product quality. Um, I mean, for example, you know, when the iPod came out, um, I've been doing a lot of reading about, you know, when that came out, what everybody's reactions were. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, it's another you know, MP3 player. It's pretty cool, but it doesn't have this. These other MP3 players have these features. But nobody like really zeroed in on, like, holy smokes, this is an amazing product. And then when the iPhone came out, people were like, yeah, you know, BlackBerry is still pretty cool. It has a physical keyboard. And, and people just fundamentally don't understand what user experience and products do to a company. So most of my, you know, some of my Tesla bet was based on financial analysis, and frankly, other people were betting that Elon wouldn't be able to raise more money, and I think Elon can raise an infinite amount of money. 
it was just, you know what, this product is so much better than the competition that I don't care if Chevrolet is rolling out a new electric car, it's still not the Tesla. Um, and perhaps that's my naivete, but I think there, there really is something to that. And I don't, I don't mean brand, um, I mean product quality. There's not a good metric for, you know, how good you feel when you do something other than kind of NPS, but um, I think people are really bad at measuring that, and so it's, it's underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think the funny example of this, I, I talk about this, I feel like with friends all the time, which is AirPods, right? It barely drops as a line yeah. item on Apple's, you know, financials. It, it doesn't ever take up, you know, any of the analyst calls. It's all about services revenue, right? How they're growing that piece of business. But I think it's one of those things, right, where, you know, people on the other side laugh and say, hey, it looks like you have Q-tips in your ear, but I would not be surprised if AirPods is the thing that drives that company, right, to continued success. It's, it's again, it's just one of those things that you can't quantitatively measure just yet, right? But it's this idea of just a absolutely, I haven't met anybody that has AirPods that ever, you know, swears to go back to regular headphones, right? It's just the product quality is unreal. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, you know, when I first tried AirPods, I was like, oh my gosh, but it was still, you know, a nerdy thing. And now, everywhere I see, um, so I went onto a college campus for the first time in a long time, and I could not believe how many people had AirPods. Um, it was it was seriously three-fourths of the people walking around campus. Um, so just, you know, there's something to the, the idea that quality products win in the end. And it might take a while. There might have to be a little marketing finesse behind it. Um, but giving the, the end user what they really want does matter. Yeah. Well, Austin, this has been you know, a really interesting conversation. And I'm, you know, I'm very interested to track you know, how you and Lambda do kind of over, over the next five to ten years. So you know, thanks for making the time. Thanks for joining us. And we really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. It was good chatting.